welcome to episode 51 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, we have a new segment this week. Yeah, we do. And you know this because it was your idea, but it's a great idea. Thank you. So we are going to steal from the language of certain kinds of uh, creedal statements. Borrow. They use the language of affirmation. Borrow. We're going to borrow from it. We're going to pay homage to certain uh, creedal statements that use the language of affirmations and denials. And we're going to use this segment to talk about things that we affirm, things that we think are great, that we think you should check out, or things that we deny, uh, things that we think are stupid or harmful or that you should avoid. So, Jesse, what are you affirming this week? So this week, I'm affirming an idea, and the idea is that God is in a bear market. So even when we talk about theology, my turn of mind is always in finance because that's the turn of mind God has given me. And of course, in a bear market, all you mean is that the things that you value are continuing to go down in value. And so I've just been reading all this stuff this week about religious affiliation in the U.S. being at its lowest point. And I've just finally come to this acknowledgement that this is where we are. That's probably not going to get better. That affiliation of all kind, that love of God in all ways is going down. And so we just need to get that 7,000. Where's that 7,000 out? There's always like a remnant. But this week I'm <laughs> affirming this idea that we got to step up because God is in a bear market. Okay. And do you have any denials this week? Yeah. Here's what I'm denying this week. Cheap um, saran wrap. Now you think you're doing yourself a favor when you go out and you say, I don't need to spend this much money on saran wrap. It, it seems unreasonable. And then you get it home. And if you're like me, it's like a wrestling match. Like you're not only just trying to get like the cling out of the <laughs> box or usually I destroy the box. It's that cheap. But you know that little like sharp edge, it's supposed to like gently and succinctly slice, slice through the, the, you know, all that static cling stuff. Yeah. It's like using a, it's like, it's a butter knife on, on cheap saran wrap. It's awful. So just, <laughs> I deny that now. I just deny it in Jesus name. Go out and spend the money <laughs> for like the reasonably priced, like more expensive saran wrap. You'll, you'll be happy. You know what I'm talking about with this? I do. So in seminary, Ashley and I got this great idea that we were going to saran wrap a friend's car as a prank. And so we were like, well, we're going to need a lot of saran wrap. And so we went and bought it. We're like, well, it's not going on food. So we'll get the cheap stuff. And like, we couldn't get it unwrapped. And like, we ended up like wrapping around the, like the car once and the person didn't even notice that it was saran wrapped. <laughs> That's how terrible the saran wrap was. What I really like is if you get the really nice saran wrap, it has like that little slider. Oh, knife I on love it that, that slider. It. Oh, those things are the best. I would pay extra money just for that slider. It's totally worth I it. I love that slider. That's why I'm denying the cheap stuff because yes. I just the other day tried to put away a salad and I thought the easiest way was like, let's be efficient, save a little water, not create an extra mess by getting another dish out, another Tupperware or something. So I just trying to get this out of the box by the time I could get it enough out so that I wanted to have it like I'm trying to show people as if they can see this by the time I have it out like in between my hands and I'm like yanking on it to try to get it to, to tear it does tear and then it all collapses like an accordion into like a single strip of like useless like <laughs> knotted plastic that I can't do anything with it's so frustrating. That's the worst. That reminds me of like packing tape when you start to unravel it and like you get a strip. 
and the strip isn't like the oh, whole yeah. thing. It's just like a little piece. And then it, you throw away half the roll trying to get it like lined up and working right again. Yeah. Just, it's, the worst. it's it's worth it to get the real stuff. I do love that slider bar. That's, that is the good stuff right there. You know. That is the good stuff. You know. So, Jesse, we sort of kind of have a topic this week. We do kind of have a topic. and it, So what what is our topic? Well, it week? goes back to kind of what I affirmed about this idea that God is in a bear market. I've thought a lot about this this week. And it's, I think we would all agree that we're living in this age that's defined by a cult of happiness in which self is the new God. I think that's pretty well established. But I'm also thinking about that idea compared with the fact that we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And no doubt people are going to be talking about this and rightfully so. And I'm thinking about it too. And so I was thinking about this idea of how the Puritans, even those that came to our country and first were preaching the gospel, they had a different sensibility about what it meant to live and to live closely with God. And in the day in which they lived, where there was not as many creature comforts or technology or medical advances, there was this different sensibility about the fact that we need God and that this life is a constant reminder, reminder not only that we're contingent, but that we're aliens, that this is not the place we should sit down our roots deep and just get hum- comfortable and hang out, that there would be a different urgency. I feel like that urgency is gone, and that's part of our problem. And I'm wondering if in celebrating the, the Reformation, the new Reformation we need is not only to say that truth, of course, is the antidote to just bad, wrong thinking, but that truth also reminds us that we need God, even if we don't need him for the headache, because now we can go and just grab some Advil, but we, we still need need him and we ought to put him in, in that proper light. You know what I mean? I do. So, you know, I always, you know, you, your, your turn of thought is always in finance and mine is always in systematic theology. And so when I think of, when you kind of pitch this topic to me, my first thought was to think about the aseity of God and how, um, you know, that's not a, not a really an attribute or anything that people in the church discuss apart from a discussion of systematic theology in most parts of the church. I had never even heard of a seity as a topic or a concept until I started studying systematic theology. And the way that I think this turns, this connects is that we don't have a good concept of how God's aseity and his independence from creation And the flip side of that being our dependence on God for our existence, right? Our very, you know, in him we live and move and have our being is not just a statement of, yeah, everything's about Jesus, which is how a lot of times it's, it's kind of preached. Like if you love Jesus, then in him and uh, we live and move and have our being. So everything's great if you're in Jesus, but it's, it's a much more deep theological concept that in the very fact that existence is a thing. The very fact that anything exists is only possible because God is self-existent. And so for me, you know, I think in previous times when, like you said, you couldn't just take Advil if you have a headache, right? If you get a migraine, there's there was no medicine for it. Right, exactly. And you just had to suffer until you got better or until you couldn't take care of yourself and you died. And that's like a real thing. Like people died because they had migraines, so they couldn't go work in the field and they couldn't produce food and they died. And so to think about the fact that we depend on God for our very existence was something that was probably very natural to the, the average person and the average Christian 200 years ago, 300 years ago, where they did have to depend on God in a very real way in order to um, 
eke out their living, right? If it, if it didn't rain, there was no way for you to get water for your crops. In our world, if it doesn't rain, well, you go to the grocery store and you buy crops, you buy food, or you irrigate the land with technology in a way that wasn't possible before. So I, I think you're absolutely right that we, we very much don't recognize um, our dependence on God and not just in terms of like creature comforts, but we don't recognize our dependence in God in the very fact that those creature comforts exist. So I, I have a car that I drive to work. I don't have to walk. I don't have to ride a horse. I don't have to do anything besides get in my car and drive. I don't have to, don't have to worry about, um, the weather because the car is heated. Um, do I take time to think, thank God for the fact that I have a car every day when I wake up? No, I don't. I probably should, but I don't. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering how damaging it's been that we've lost that sensibility. And that's where I'm kind of coming back to with the Reformation is just, it was an idea of complete reliance on God. And for them, I think sometimes the line is a little bit easier to draw between, well, physical dependency and spiritual dependency. When I realize how deep my physical dependency is, because there's no other alternative source for comfort or for healing or for strength. And so then it's easy to make the transition from, well, that makes sense. And so it clearly makes sense how I'm completely spiritually bankrupt. So it seems to me that disconnection of one can force a disconnection with the other. And and even to like, so I'm not saying that all these wonderful creature comforts like modern medicine, which we all rely on and love or insurance or any of the other things aren't like a means of grace that um, God has given us, not like in the strict theological sense, but just his gracious will to us, a common grace that he's given to us right. in the age in which we live, uh, that those are good gifts that we can enjoy from a loving father. But it comes back to, are we replacing the gifts and putting them ahead of our father who gives them. And even something as simple in my mind, because again, it is mostly finance oriented, like something as simple as credit. I mean, think about like being able to get credits, like monetary yeah. credit for something. I mean, no longer are we frustrated with not being able to buy something like satisfaction is now the new normal. Like that old ad, I think from visa, which was like, take the waiting out of wanting this whole idea that you can get whatever you want right now, even if you don't have the means to do so, there's no sense of reliance on a transcendent power or maybe better said like credit or money becomes the transcendent power. And then we lose our sensibility. I'm just wondering how much have we lost of ourselves, even good Christians, how much have we lost of ourselves by getting fixated on, you know, going to someplace else to meet our needs? Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, that really ties into the spiritual decline of I think the whole Christian church, um, in a real, very real way. So even if you think of the most, um, restrictive in terms of like institutionally restrictive expression of Christianity, and some people are going to object that I'm calling this an expression of Christianity, but you talk about like the Roman Catholic church, which if you break their rules, they will excommunicate you, which for their theology means you are beyond salvation. They are literally condemning you to hell for, for, you know, I'm not, not arbitrarily, they have their, their procedures and rules and, um, theological methods for that. But even, even in that situation, it's really not all that difficult to, if you get in trouble in one parish to just go to another parish and the prominence of that. And in some ways, the sort of the desperation of needing parishioners has caused that to be an acceptable thing. And that's even more prominent in Protestant circles. Right. So if I if I'm under church discipline in First Baptist of, you know, um, Newark, 
I don't know why I picked Newark. I don't know. New but Jersey? If I'm under church discipline at this church over here on this part of the city and I don't want to deal with it, I just go to this other church on right. the other part of the city. And for the most part, um, and this is more prominent in um, in sort of independent congregationalist kinds of models, but for the most part, if I go from one church to another, nobody's going to ask me why. Nobody's going to make a phone call to the pastor from my previous church. No one's going to ask me to have any sort of documentation about leaving on good standing or anything like that. So this idea that we have sort of this consumer driven me culture has really been a detriment, I think, to the whole church, but especially the church in North America and in, in Western Europe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's kind of what I'm driving at is like, how do we maybe part of the Reformation needs to be that we're thinking about in terms of the future needs to be centered on that idea. How do we get ourselves in a position where we're not in that position? So yeah. aside from I think when we sometimes pray that the that God would break us, that he would humble us, that we come before him in that kind of attitude with contrition, because we know that that's exactly the kind of attitude that God values in his children. My worry is that when I pray that I don't really understand what I'm praying and then God is going to give me exactly that situation in a way to break <laughs> me that I don't like. And he's going to break me. It's not just going to be like, well, let me bend you a little bit. So you feel it. And you're like, Ooh, that was stressful. I did not like that. Yeah. He's going to crush you in a way. And so I, I think often that I don't want to be a bit in bridal Christian. I think a lot about Psalm 32 when David's writing, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. So I guess what I'm asking is, I want your opinion on this. How do we make sure that we're not like a bit and bridle Christian so that we don't end up getting a really crazy, harmful rebuke that we might not really enjoy? Or is it not possible to be one without the really hard rebuke? Well, I, I think, you know, we've we've got this Westie that we've been trying to train for the last year and we love our dog and everyone in the family loves our dog. But this is, trust me, this is going to come around, I promise. We've had um, difficulty with potty training. Uh, it's just been a challenge. And at some point with a dog, you have to get tough, right? So one of the main issues that we have without getting into too much details is that she thinks it's okay to use the her cage as a bathroom. And so when we lock her in the cage to go to work in the morning, um, she just destroys the cage. She goes to the bathroom, then she's uncomfortable. And so she rips up the newspaper and spits it all over the place and just makes a giant mess. And what the, you know, trying to research, well, what do we do about this? And one of the things they say is take the newspaper out and let her lie in it because she needs to understand that this is going to make her uncomfortable. And that's the way it is. So that, I think that's kind of like what you're getting at is that if we persist in our sin as Christians, uh, first of all, if we persist in our sin uh, and we're stubborn and rebellious in our sin, then we need to ask the hard question of if we actually are Christians or not right. in the first place. For sure. Right. God's word is really clear that those who persist stubbornly in unrepentant sin will have no part of God's kingdom. Those warning passages in Hebrews aren't just hypotheticals, right? They're, they're real warnings designed to prevent Christians from going off a real cliff into damnation. But assuming that we are real Christians, there's still a point where God's going to grab us by the collar and he's going to shake us until we stop doing what we're going what we're doing until we learn the lesson he wants us to learn. And um I think the more that we can learn that lesson soon, the more that we can appropriate what God's doing, 
um, the less likely it is that we're going to get to that point. Obviously, God's got everything worked out in his providence. We're not changing God's mind or God's providence or anything like that right. by our actions. But God uses means and he He anthropomorphically reveals himself in a way where it, he He reveals himself as interacting with his creation. He does interact, but in a way that we don't understand. And so I think something as simple as being in the word daily, right? That's a something that for whatever reason, Christians seem to feel is like an uncomfortable thing to do. Like they, they talk about it like it's this major chore and this difficult task. And it's so, it's such a sacrifice to spend time reading the Bible every day. And I've never really understood it because there are any number of things that I devote my time to every day that are equally difficult or more difficult than sitting down and reading the Bible for 15 minutes. So I don't really understand why that has become sort of like a, like, oh, that's my cross to bear that I have to read my Bible every day. Um, but I think that that is one step that we can take that will help us to, to not get to that point because, you know, everybody looks at the world through a grid, right? We all have our grid. We all have our worldview and the world comes to us through that worldview and we appropriate it and we understand it through that lens. And so if you're using and you're, you're consuming the word, right? Ezekiel is given the prophecy and he's told to eat it. And sometimes it's bitter and sometimes it's sweet. And when it's sweet, it's sweet, but when it's bitter, it's still serving a purpose. So sometimes that purpose is to correct our sinful way of looking at the world. Right. And so when I look at the world through the scriptural lenses that God is trying to build for me through my study of the scripture, I'm much more likely to avoid sin almost instinctively because it looks like sin. It doesn't look good to me. It doesn't look beautiful. It looks disgusting and vile because I'm seeing it the way God wants me to see it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at because... I don't want to be forced to lay down a newspaper that's been peed on. So the thing is, <laughs> but that, I mean, the only thing that made me uncomfortable about that metaphor was that it was a metaphor. It was coming back to this conversation, but it's a good yeah. one because I do sometimes think, well, are there things that we can only learn through really hard discourses or really hard suffering? And it's, I think there are many of those things, but I totally agree with you. This is why I think it's so proper to say we need to be in the scriptures all the time, as much as we're able to actually. And for many people, they hear that and they think, well, you're pulling that out of context because like traditionally, historically, the church hasn't, everybody hasn't always had access to their copy of the Bible, which I kind of find like is a little bit of red herring because it's a blessing to live in this day and age when you can have it on your phone, on your computer and, and every conceivable device that you have. Um, but more than that, we're not talking about like some kind of legalistic requirement that makes you a better person. We're trying to say, I think, at least for myself, this is where the abundant life lies. If, if you don't want to be a problem child in the Lord, if you don't want to be constantly having to be fitted with the bit in the bridle, then it's best to get in the words. The Lord can convict you almost on a daily basis, be transforming your mind before we even get to the point where he's like, listen, you've made a mess in your cage and now you've got to lie in that for a while or you should so you can really learn what's up. So I, I think that's a good testimony is that's the reason why. Like I, I would never say to somebody, you need to be in the scriptures every day because it's going to make you a better Christian. Like, what does that even mean? It's going to give you abundant life. It's going to give you a following after the Lord Jesus Christ. That's like firm and filled with fidelity and filled with blessing and filled with reality where you get concerned with the way things really are and not as they appear to be. That's what I want. And even still, I'm sure there's going to be times in my life where I just don't get stuff or I'm in the word constantly. 
and God is still trying to like hammer on my heart. And, and here he says, it's time to break out the anvil because you just still didn't get this. And you're going to have to go through that. But I would, I really like to limit my suffering, but I feel like the only way to do that properly, going back to whether we're, we're puritanical about it or not, is this idea that we stay really close to God. And the really the best way to do that is through prayer and through the understanding his full counsel and, and just like pickling ourselves in that, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're about the same age and I think most of our audience probably is pretty close. Do you remember those Mr. Ick stickers? Oh yeah. The Mr. Ick poison stickers. Oh yeah, sure. So that's kind of how I think about the scripture and sin, right? Is the scripture says that sin uh, is enjoyable for a season, but it leads to death. And I remember when I was younger, um, when I was, I was probably like, man, I must've been like eight or nine years old, maybe even younger than that. I used to take asthma medicine and I didn't have an inhaler, but I had this um, liquid asthma medicine that I would take and it tasted really good, like really, really good. I loved it. That's a strange um, thing. I don't even, I, I can't even describe what the flavor was, but I just remember it tasted really good. And um, I remember one time I crawled up into the counter and got it and I was trying to get the safety cap off and I was trying to get it off because I wanted to drink it because it tasted so good. And my mom came and explained to me that this tastes good, but if you drink too much of it, it's going to hurt you. And I think sin is in some ways the same in that sometimes it tastes really sweet, but even a little bit is poison and will kill you. Right. And so when I look at the scripture, it's reorienting my understanding. So back to the Mr. Ick sticker, my mom took a Mr. It sticker and this a Mr. Ick sticker, and she probably shouldn't have done this, but she took a Mr. Ick sticker and put it on the medicine. Now there was some like mixed signaling going on there because it wasn't poison, but the point was she wanted to signal to me that this is dangerous. Right. And so when I read the scripture, it's like all of a sudden God is putting Mr. Ick stickers all over sin for me. And it it's not something that like happened consciously. So you read the scriptures, you read you're you're renewed in your mind and you're given a new worldview. Right? God takes your heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that desires to serve him. And then he equips you to do that through the word. And now when I look at a sinful situation, it it doesn't always look sweet anymore. Right? Sometimes right. I see it for what it is. I don't always see it for what it is. And some obviously we still sin. But in an increasing manner, I start to see sin for what it is. And that, that to me is that sanctification in a nutshell yes. is you're starting to see sin for what it is and you're starting to see God for who he is. Your loving adoptive father who wants nothing but the best for you instead of this tyrant that you once thought he was. So what you're saying is basically the Holy Spirit is coming into your life, slapping Mr. Ick stickers on all the places where we, we should not go or we, our eyes should not see or our hands should not do. And um, we we get to see those as a visible reminder, but only by his empowering. I mean, we're not putting up the stickers because right. we think we don't need to put any up, that everything is cool and right. everything is awesome. And then we see the hand that's putting them up, at least anthropomorphically, as, well, this is my father. So, you know, oftentimes when God says no, he's saying don't hurt yourself, that, that this is like outside the scope of who you were meant to be. And that's where I love that metaphor even though I never know where you're going with your metaphors, Tony, but they always come back <laughs> around to like be something interesting. But I like those because it reminds us that God wants for us the abundant life. He's trying to restore even in our imperfect nature right now. He's, he's regenerating that to such an extent 
and bring us to a place that won't be perfection in this life, but as close as as possible, I guess, in the sense that he's working all things for good for those whom he's called together. And that good is that we would be reminded of who we are, identity in Christ, and that we would be reunited in God in a life that is full and, again, like abundant, which I was just saying before. So I think that abundance is something that we ought to take seriously. Like that, that is the goal. It's not just doing good things, of course. It's not just feeling really good. And this is where even like when you and I talk or, or I think about my theology, the problem I think sometimes with Reformed theology is that rather than it being the rock that is set across our shoulders that crushes us into that kind of submission, it becomes the rock that we get to perch ourselves on and sit on and think highly. The theology makes us feel good. Yeah. And it's not that we shouldn't have a strong conviction about what we believe that's rooted in the truth and systematized in such a way that we can process it, explain it, and live it out practically. But we need to be crushed by it more often. So we're in a place that says, look at all the stickers. I need to I need to watch out for Mr. Ick. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's absolutely true. And we need to hear that as a corrective for kind of the reform community is that, although I, I think, you know, the theological positions of the Reformed faith should make us feel and recognize that by God's grace, we are co-heirs to the universe right, with Christ. Right, Amen. right. If that doesn't make your spirit soar, then nothing ever will. But at the same time, um, you know, this is like the least post-millennialist uh, episode that we're ever going to have. But at the same time, we live in the now and not yet. And so while it's true that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ and we are already co-heirs of the universe with Christ as our elder brother, we also are still vile, dirty sinners who, if we were not restrained by God's Holy Spirit, would spit in his face still. Right. And I know that that's a little controversial. There are some people that are going to say, you know, I'm thinking like Mark Jones would probably string me up for that sentence. But the fact is that sin is a strong force that still clings on to us. And while we should always be experiencing victory as we increase in holiness, we can never forget the fact that there's always going to be that part of us that wants to rebel. And unfortunately, more often than not, that part of us, that voice is louder than the voice that says, no, do what's right. Right. Do what is good. The do what's good voice, sometimes we hear it and sometimes we do what's good. And Christians can do genuinely good works that that genuinely please God not in a meritorious way we don't earn God's favor or we don't earn our salvation or anything like that but we can do things that anthropomorphically God looks at and smiles but we also do things that makes God shake his head and weep and the the sooner that we as Christians remember that the sooner that we recognize that we are making the God who created and loves us weep anthropomorphically of course um the sooner it is that we recognize the gravity of our sin and that for me that is the mr x sticker right i look at something and i see this is not what my father would want me to do this is not how the son of god would act this is not what an heir of the universe should be participating in and the sooner i can recognize that that's one step closer to overcoming that sin in my life whatever it happens to be. It could be anger or lust or greed, whatever it is. But the sooner I recognize it for what it is, instead of what I think it is, the sooner I am or the closer I am to overcoming it. And that's why I'm thinking when we 
come to this place where we forget God, that we forget that we're contingent, then we think that we don't need him as we once thought we did, or that we don't need him for every breath or every hour, that we're we're closer to letting everything decay in that sense. And I agree with you. I, I don't want I didn't intend for this to be like a really like downer episode in the sense that like we're all sinful and our human nature is awful and don't let yourself help you because yourself sucks. So that's a reason why never <laughs> to read a self-help book. Like I don't want myself helping me. That's the worst possible thing to help. But out of that, out of that like really like manure filled soil, so to speak, comes yeah. the greatest growth, like the, the most beautiful plants and flowers. And I think that is the gospel. Like you can't have one without the other. So I feel like we cheapen the gospel. We cheapen our churches. Like if we show up in our churches and we're thinking it's the church's great benefit that I that I come and hang out or that I serve or that I'm part of this community. Like we just totally lost. And who hasn't thought that way at some point in their lives? I mean, I have. So there's this idea that we need to kind of get, at least in my mind, to get back to realizing that we just need God everywhere. And that I like what you said about the works that we do while not meritorious, that even when we're serving God as best we can with as much altruism and passion and love, that still there is this like clinging sin and God is the only one that's basically able to make that through Jesus Christ is still an acceptable sacrifice to him, even though something right. that is truly pleasing, even though it still lacks the full perfection in its expression that he would require. Jesus essentially fills the gap by the propitiation yeah. that he's made for us. So even in the good things that we do, they become good things or they are substantiated as good things because of what Jesus has done. And so still we need God. So just like every breath I, sh- I breathe, it should be an exhale, an exhalation of I'm sorry. And, right. and even with the good things I do, I, I have to say, God, I need you for these things to even be good. I need you. So I just can't get away from that. I feel like I've been running from that for a little while and to just kind of sit down and let the theology of that settle on my shoulders and realize I can't even hold it up and say, God, I need you for everything has been kind yeah. of, kind of freeing for me. Um, yeah, just just kind of freeing. That's that's all I got. Yeah, I, and I mean that's. I was also thinking that we've used the word anthropomorphically like the most I've ever yeah. heard in our, this conversation. Yeah, you'd think that would have come up more in our theology proper episode, but apparently this is the anthropomorphic episode. But I was cutting you off. What were you going to say? I, I was going to say like that's the beauty of the cross, though, right? So we we as fallen, tainted creatures who are by and large curved in on ourselves and always seeking our own good rather than the good and glory of God. When we do a good work, even, even the works that I would say God genuinely smiles at are still tainted with our own selfishness. And so the beauty of the cross is that I hold this, I hold this tainted work up to God and he takes the sinfulness of it and he crucifies it with Christ. Right. And then he takes the, the, the glory and the merit and the honor that Christ obtained as he learned obedience by suffering on the cross. And he takes that, he takes that pile of manure out of my hand and he puts it into Christ's hand and he takes the glorious reward that Christ has in his hand and he puts it into my hand, right? That is double imputation. If you're looking for a a vibrant word picture, that is double imputation. And that's the beauty of the Christian life is that we can try and we should strive and try. There's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, we must be striving, right? Those people who sit, who want to take the whole, um, 
be still and know that I am God verse and say what it means is cease trying. Stop trying so hard. They're wrong. Try harder, right? That's that's the call of the Christian life. Try harder, do better, but not to earn your salvation, but because you love God, right? When a, when a marriage is starting to fail, it's because one partner usually, because one partner or both partners stop trying and they, they get lazy. And that's that's the Christian life is to keep trying. And we only can keep trying because of the Holy Spirit, obviously. Right? Right, We're Calvinists. Exactly. So it's not it's not as though any of this happens apart from the Holy Spirit's empowering. But the second that we sit back and say, I'm just tired. I, I can't do it anymore is the second we should recognize that if we genuinely can't do it anymore and we stop doing it, then it's because we never had the Holy Spirit in the first place. Now that's not to say there aren't dark valleys and times of struggles and and the you know the dark night of the soul all that stuff is real but at the end of the day in the final analysis those who persevere to the end will be saved right that's a scriptural principle so we have to we have to have categories for what that means and when we um, you know we'll probably have an episode on sanctification um, more in depth in the future but the short end of it is that we are able to persevere because the Holy Spirit enables us to persevere. But if we don't persevere, the consequential flip side of that is that it's because the Holy Spirit hasn't enabled us to persevere. And that's a serious thing. So, you know, we can go back and forth about like, well, what do you do if you're in this place where you're not persevering and you want to? Well, if you want to, then you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to. Um, you know, it's it's on one level, the Christian life is not all that difficult to understand. It's not all that complicated, right? You don't need a 7,000 page tome on sanctification, right? Read your Bible, strive to be obedient to God's law and ask the Holy Spirit to, um, to make you obedient in increasing fashion, right? Book over. But on the flip side, that's infinitely difficult. So I don't want people to walk away from this conversation thinking that like, this is all about doing better, do more, do more, do more, because right. it's not, right? We should be doing those things. We should be striving. But at the end of the day, the Reformed Christian should sit back and recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one that not only gives us the desire to do good works, but he prepared those good works in advance for us, right? That's right. in Ephesians exactly. 2, yep. right? God, God saved you by grace through faith, not by works, but in order to do works, and so we, every step of the way, everything is prepared for us. And all that the, all the scripture says that we do is we walk in it, right? We don't plan the good works. We don't have to make them happen. We simply walk the pla- the path that God has already prepared for us. Yeah. Amen. I like that. I mean, Ephesians 2 is a good reminder. I've always thought of that as God is giving you a to-do list and he set it up and he's given you the resources to do it. But this is where there's space here for us to understand that we have a role to play, which is why Paul's saying, work out your own salvation. But he's not saying that, like you said, as if like you just need to do better and work harder so that you can pull yourself up, pull your socks up taller and get out there and do your thing. Um, It's not like that at all. But to say that we have no part to play is also just as erroneous. And so we do need to keep getting up and we need to keep trying and we need to keep working. And sometimes I think people in our tradition generally hate the idea of saying, well, work harder, but that is necessary sometimes. Like you're just right. not giving it your all. You have a divided mind still on this and the Lord is going to beat you down on that until you open yourself up to saying, Lord, I submit to you wholly in this area where, you know, if our, if our lives are houses, 
we'd certainly all have rooms that we don't want to welcome God into. So we say you can come hang out in the living room and the kitchen, but like the bedroom, that's off limits. That was a really weird example for me to use. (laughs) Um, I didn't mean that in that way, but just like the closet is off limits. Like the, the basement is off limits. And so it's, it's this continual process of working harder to be more hospitable to the Holy Spirit so that he is allowed greater submission. But at the same time, we know that God is giving us the power to do those things. You know, it strikes me that if, if God didn't give me the challenges in life, or like you said, through his aseity and through his, his sovereign nature, plan for me these good works that I should do, then I would never know what it would be like to follow God. Because if I always got my own way, I would never know what it was like to follow him. So it is a really good gift, but it's really difficult as well. But it it doesn't mean like we shouldn't do it. We should do it. We should just push on. Yeah. And there are probably people who are listening to this right now that are thinking that we are like the most legalistic people in the world. But the fact is... Being obedient to God's law is not legalism. It's just being Christian, right? We're not called to a life of ignoring God's law. We are called to a life of following God's law joyfully and voluntarily. Like we voluntarily follow it, Um, you know, but the Psalm 119 is still in the Bible, right? Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the ways of the wicked or in the counsel of the wicked and sits not in the seat of the sinners, right? There's more to it, but that's the paraphrase. And it goes on to say, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, right? That's still in the Bible, and that's still about us. That's still about the righteous man who is in Christ. And so I get really sick of people who look at just straight-up sinful things, and they, they chalk off doing sinful things to Christian liberty, and if you try to tell them that they don't have the liberty to sin, they call you a legalist. Right. So, you know, you talk about rooms in our house that are not available to God. And the most common room in the house that's not available to God is wherever the TV is. Yeah, for sure. Right? For sure. So maybe to put some practical feet on this, right? We've been saying try harder, do better. To put some practical feet on this, think about the stuff you watch on television. Right? What on television are you watching that has a big green Mr. X sticker on it that you've been ignoring and drinking poison? Right. Yeah. That's not a question to you. No. That's just a question. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. I mean, it I, might be I a question I was not going to open you, that I'm, room up to you. So, um, yeah. No, I think. I'm not asking you to answer it on the no, air. I, but I'm saying like that's that's, that's a thing we need to look at. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, that's a really good idea. Like taking taking time to almost even fast from some stuff and pray through kind of asking God to essentially vet what you're watching by way of taking time away from it and spending a little bit of time in the scriptures. Uh, maybe a good idea would be if you feel even like a, a tinge of conviction, like a slight pricking of the heart, the best thing to do, I think would be to set it aside for a period of time, maybe a week, maybe a month, use the time you were devoting to that particular activity to spend in the scripture, but then really spend some time praying through, is it wise? I mean, this idea of permissibility versus wisdom. And then like you said, Christian Liberty. And what's funny is if people like actually sat down with us or if they knew us anyway, they would definitely not call us legalists because right. we, we have a passion for this idea that it, it is, you know, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, but it's a freedom that comes with a responsibility that is best expressed in obedience. And 
that if we're serious about Christ changing us, then that should change our volitions in such a way that we want to please our Heavenly Father and receive the rewards of obedience, that we're actually serious about that. We're not just saying we want to be comfortable with the creature comforts we have now, whether that be the thing we want to watch or the thing we want to do. But we're still, again, not forgetting that we need God, that this current environment where we're in, we're just resident aliens hanging out. We, we don't even have green cards. We're ready to go to the promised land. And in that promised land, what gets rewarded? What is kind of the hallmark of transformed and regenerated and changed lives? It is obedience that conforms to the Father, just like the Son. So I, I always think one of the things I so admire about Jesus, especially because we've spoken at length about his true and authentic, genuine humanity, was how crazy disciplined he was. Yeah. I mean, talk about somebody trying harder, working, striving in prayer and in ministry and in vocation. There is no greater example. Nobody worked harder than Jesus. And he, yeah. he, he made that like a very serious part of his life. And yet I have to think that there are times when he said things that were just funny or he pushed back on people like he was a legalist. He had a good sense of humor. And yet we get from right. him this really strong example that there are things to do that God has saved us for good works and that everybody, you and I, we both have like this to-do list and we ought about we ought to be about getting the to the father's business so if that's a legalist then we should all be that way um but you know it <laughs> now i'm mixing metaphors yeah. but you and i definitely well, just to legalist. add some coals on top of the legalist right but just to mix some uh to to keep some coals on top of the legalist accusations that may be coming my way so i want to address a specific situation okay Right, because I want to give a practical, um, a practical real world example of where I see Christians just straight up drinking poison. All right, well, we're getting real right. now, so let's do Game it. Game of Thrones. Okay, let's do it. Game of Thrones. Right. So this show is a show that contains uh, graphic depictions of human sexuality, um, of of incest, of rape, of vile, disgusting uh, stuff, including. And this actually even seems like a minimalistic thing compared to what I just said, including just nudity, right? It's not fake. It's not uh, obscured. It's it's two people taking their clothes off and pretending to have sex with each right. other in front of a camera crew and then in front of the world, right? Let's call it what it is. Let's not mince words. And I see Christians on social media saying, well, you know, it's not my sin. It's okay for me to watch it as long as I turn my head away. And here's here is the fact of it is if you are watching that, even if you turn your head away, even if you watch the edited version, you are still watching edited pornography, right? It is no different than if you picked up a Playboy magazine, which I guess isn't even a thing anymore, but if you picked up a Playboy magazine and you just flipped past the pages with the naked girls on it, right? It's You're still consuming pornography, and so every time I see a Christian defend this, I want to grab them by their collar and I want to shake them and say, what are you doing? You are drinking poison. You are poisoning your soul with this stuff. And um, it just drives me nuts. And so this is one of those areas where I think Christians look at it and they go, well, there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not watch Game of Thrones. And so I have the freedom to consume whatever I want as long as I'm careful. Well, no, you don't, right? God's law says, do not put any detestable thing in front of your eyes, right? right. God's law says, do not look on the nakedness of someone you're not married to, right? Obviously, like we're going to put things like doctors aside and things like that, that are, we can have that discussion, but 
We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about a Christian who is consuming pornography for their own gratification of their own bodily desires, right? You don't need to watch television. And even if somehow you needed to watch television, you don't need to watch Game of Thrones. And this is just the most stark example of it. So not to disagree with what you said about your convictions and if your conscience is pricked, there are things that are, um, I don't want to say they're black, they're not black and white because ultimately something is either sinful for you or it's not, but it's gray in terms of how we perceive it. And so you have to take a step back and exercise wisdom. Right. And sometimes things are not sinful and they seem sinful. Sometimes things are sinful and they don't seem sinful. And so we have to assess those, but there are some things that are so clearly sinful that it's not, I don't really care what your conviction is, right? If you're not convicted about watching pornography, then maybe you're not a Christian. And I know that that's like a really hard word to say, but remember what we said. If you are living in unrepentant sin, if sin doesn't bother you, then you will have no part in God's kingdom. Those are hard words, but there will be people in the end days who Christ looks at and says, I never knew you. I don't care that you had my name strapped on your chest. I don't care that you went to church every Sunday. I never knew you. And that's a terrifying statement. And the worst part is that the people who want to cry legalist on things like Game of Thrones or other kinds of just clearly sinful things, those are the ones that I fear are not concerned by that passage right? They're not concerned that they may not know Christ and that Christ may not know them. That's a bad place to be because they're so seared by their own sin that if they are Christians, like we said earlier, God's going to, God's going to have to do surgery on them to get all those calluses off. And God doesn't use anesthesia, right? He doesn't soften the pain of that kind of cut. He lets you feel it because you have to feel it, right? Because the suffering produces steadfastness and endurance, right? And if he doesn't peel that stuff away, it's going to kill you. So it's just one of those things. I had this weird thought today. One of my like deepest fears, this is really weird and introspective, but one of my deepest fears is choking to death. So sometimes I think about like what it would be like to choke to death. Why would you think about that if that's a deep fear? I I don't know because I'm a weird dude and I get stuff stuck in my head. But sometimes I think about how, you know, they do that tracheotomy thing where they put a, they, they cut into your neck. Right. And they put the tube in there. They don't usually do that when you're unconscious and they don't take time to, to anesthetize you. So you feel the cut, you feel them digging around and they're trying to find the spot to put the trach, the trach scope, right? But you let them do it because it's going to save your life. And so we have to let God do painful surgery or, or he's not going to save our lives. And we're not talking about attempt, you know, five minutes I'm out and then I'm dead and I don't have to worry about choking anymore. That's not what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about eternal damnation, the fire that never burns out, the worm that never dies, right? So if if God's got to do painful surgery on me, I say, bring it on. I'm all ready for that. I would much rather learn it without, you know, without the painful surgery on my heart. But if that's what it's going to take, then I would love to do that. And something as stupid and simple as a television show, just get rid of the garbage, right? You know that it's wrong. Stop watching it. It's as simple as that. So let me read something from Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, 
just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So exactly what you're saying, there are times where we're confronted with something. It doesn't even deserve to have you say, well, I should just take a break and, and weigh this out. There are some things like a Game of Thrones that are in a category all their own. And we need to remember that intent always precedes content. So if we're coming to those things for entertainment and then they have all these things in there, which are clearly violations of the way in which God should have us to live. And we're consuming them as a form of entertainment. I mean, those two things by themselves should give us pause, but together in particular, we should just walk away. Right. And we're not trying to put like anybody on blast for the sake of just putting people on blast. But this is kind of a call for all of us to say, as we've been talking about this entire time, like, wise up. Aren't we better than this? Like, let do something else. Go, go, do something else. Um, just get that out of your out of your space because that is the kind of thing that is going to poison us. And we're just better than that. I, I think anybody should be able to say, like, I'm I'm better than this. As a Christian, as somebody who's seeking closely to emulate and to follow Jesus Christ, to live a life of holiness. Like, holiness doesn't leave a lot of opportunity for many things. And so. That's like an even more nuanced standard. Like there's plenty of things that I do that I think that would, somebody could come and say, maybe there's, like you said, kind of like a, a sliding scale where we might weigh something out and say, no, this isn't sinful in the right context. Or for instance, like consuming alcohol responsibly. We might say, well, there's an appropriate place for that. There are also times where you should not bring somebody who's struggling with alcoholism into that environment and consume it in front of them. Right. That would be a sin in that environment. But there are also other things, for instance, uh, like pornography that are just like unequivocally just wrong. Just get it yeah. out. There, there, in my mind, there's, there's no good reason. And, and a relationship with a doctor patient is totally different than what we're talking about because the intent is different. So it informs right. the content. But here I just can't get away that our intent is not noble per se because we're looking for entertainment. And then when we're consuming immorality and bridging it as our entertainment, oh my goodness, like that, that is a recipe for you asking God to have some, have a serious talk with you, like a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, where yeah. he's going to get out the hammer and impound us. And I just prefer yeah. not, not to go there, but he's doing it for our good. But uh, I guess I'm just trying to say like, yeah, everybody like us included, like we just need to do better. Yeah. And at the end of the day, Game of Thrones is just an example. I think that all of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, could look in our lives and identify somewhere where we're just straight up drinking poison. Right, exactly. Right? That doesn't mean we don't struggle or that we don't wrestle, but there are. I'm sure that if you take a little bit of time and you really evaluate your life, that you will find areas that, of sin that you just are simply tolerating. You're not trying to stop. You're not doing anything. And so I, I'm, I'm being firm on that explicit, um, clear example because I want people to understand the gravity of sin, right? It's not okay. And it's not all screaming in our face like a HBO television show, right? And there's any number of shows on HBO that fall under the same category. Game of Thrones just happens to be the most popular one right now. But when we have sin in our lives that we are tolerating, it it is literally tolerating something that we affirm with our mouth will kill us but don't do anything about. And I, if there was some sort of deadly poison in our house that I knew was going to kill us, I would get it out of the house. Right. I would do something about it. But when we see this sin in our lives that we think is, um, we may not even think it's okay, but we enjoy it for a season. We like it because it's sweet right, right now. Right. We don't recognize that it's going to kill us. 
um, or even if we do, we still indulge and we think I can handle it. I'm just going to have a little bit of it and, and a little bit more and a little bit more, but I'll stop before it gets really dangerous. And then all of a sudden you're dead. And I mean, that's how, that's how it works. And that's how Satan gets us. So I, I don't know exactly where we go from here. I want to try to end on a positive <laughs> note, but I don't really know how. And we have these episodes every once in a while where we just kind of like get, we get down and we don't know where to go. Oh, but We got down. We did. I guess maybe the, the, the only way that we can be positive about this is to recognize that there is a solution, right? There's a God who loves us and desires to save us from ourselves from our own sinfulness and from the things that we put in front of our face instead of him. Right. And so, you know, if, if you have that struggle, that thing that you, if you, if you're a person who has a sin that you are constantly struggling against and you are not able to gain victory right now over that, I just sounded like super charismatic, but if you're not able to right now, yep. Up in the air. If you're not able to gain ground in that battle, I figure if we go with like like military metaphors, we'll sound less charismatic. If you're not able to gain ground in that battle, <laughs> I'm not necessarily talking to you, right? We all have those those besetting sins that no matter how hard we try and how hard we strive, for whatever reason, God has allowed us to sort of be stuck there for our own benefit in the long term, but we don't we don't really understand how. But who I'm talking to are the people who are indulging in sin, knowingly indulging in sin. And the beauty is that you just have to stop, right? You just have to stop. It doesn't have power over you if you are in Christ. It doesn't have any power over you except what you're giving it. Right and on. so I know that that's, I know it's always a lot harder than, than that makes it sound. But when you all boil it down, it's a choice that you make. It's a decision you make to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus and to trust him to protect you from that. And that's, that's what repentance is, right? You turn to Jesus and you trust him to save you, even though you don't necessarily see in front of your eyes the salvation that's promised to you. That's why it's trust, because he says, in the end day, I'm going to save you. And as long as you trust me to do that, I will surely do it. That's a promise. And if it was already accomplished in terms of like in front of our eyes, we see it and we, we can grasp it. If it was already accomplished in that way, it wouldn't be a promise anymore, right? It would be a delivered gift. It would be a delivered thing that we already have. But the fact that it's in the future that we will receive our final salvation when we'll stand before his throne and we'll hear well done, good and faithful servant. That's a a defined and predetermined outcome, but we still have to trust him that 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 outcome will come to be. And that's all we have to do. That's all we can do is throw ourselves on Christ and trust him to save us. Amen. This is the perfect place for the hope of the gospel, which is a reminder again that how desperately we need God. So let me end with reading a couple of verses from Psalm 32, which I think bridge us from that place of desperation into that place of hope. Blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Yeah. Blessed assurance. So good. Yeah, that's blessed assurance right there. So good. So if people, Tony, want to send Game of Thrones hate mail to us or, (laughs) you know, contact us and say verbally how much they hated everything we said about Game of Thrones, how can they do that kind of thing? Well, 
I have been doing some work on the website. So I'm actually going to point people to the website today. All right. So you can check us out, reformbrotherhood.com. Um, there's a link on the top that says contact. Actually, I think it says follow. And if, if you click on it or open it, it's got all the different ways that you can get in touch with us. But to run through those, you can tweet at us at Twitter at reformbrotherhood. Uh, you can email us, reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. Or you can call us. And Jesse, what is that phone number to call us? 607 2767 Bro. Leave us a voicemail. Yes. And, you know, we want to be, we, we talked last week about how we want this brotherhood to extend beyond just you and I, beyond the Society of Reform Podcasters, which we're also a part of, but beyond this sort of like group of people that we've started to build friendships with. We want to extend past that. And so if, if you have um, something in your life that you're struggling with, always first and foremost, go talk to your pastor and your elders, right? right? We're not pastors. We're, we're not pastors at not all. Pastors. And even if we were, we're not your pastors. Not your pastors. But there's also strength in fellowship with other Christians. So if you're struggling with something and you have already talked to your pastor, but you'd like to talk to someone else, please feel free to leave us a message, shoot us an email. We're happy to dialogue with you in those ways. Um, we would love to be able to be um, a blessing and encouragement to anyone in any way that we can. For sure. Let's do it. That's what the brotherhood is about is getting after the Christian life together, which is obedience and abundance in consummate harmony. I guess until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if-